I've got a little favor to ask before we get started. I have a completely anonymous survey I would like you to take. It's only 13 questions. None of them are essay questions, so it's really quick. Check it out at podsurvey.com slash left. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, the Tom Hartman Program, the Young Turks, Truth Dig Radio, Anti-Racism Educator Tim Wise, and Making Contact. While Dr. King is primarily remembered as a civil rights leader, he also championed the cause of the poor, organizing the Poor People's Campaign to address issues of economic justice. Dr. King was also a fierce critic of U.S. foreign policy and the Vietnam War. In 1964, Dr. King became the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. Days before he received that award in Oslo, Norway, Dr. King traveled to London. On December 7th, 1964, Dr. King gave a speech sponsored by the British group Christian Action about the civil rights struggle in the United States, as well as the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. The speech was recorded by Saul Bernstein, who was working as the European correspondent for Pacifica Radio. Bernstein's recording was recently discovered by Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio archives. This is that address by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Now let us know notice first that we've come a long, long way, and I would like to say at this point that the Negro himself has come a long, long way in re-evaluating his own intrinsic worth. Now, in order to illustrate this, a little history is necessary. It was in the year 1619 when the first Negro slaves landed on the shores of America, and they were brought there from the soils of Africa. Unlike the Pilgrim Fathers who landed at Plymouth a year later, they were brought there against their wills. And throughout slavery, the Negro was treated in a very inhuman fashion. He was a thing to be used, not a person to be respected. The United States Supreme Court rendered a decision in 1857 known as the Dred Scott decision, which well illustrated what existed at that time. But in this decision, the Supreme Court of the United States said in substance that the Negro is not a citizen of the United States. He is merely property subject to the dictates of his owner. And it went on to say that the Negro has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. This was the idea that prevailed during the days of slavery. With the growth of slavery, it became necessary to give some justification for it. You know, it seems to be a fact of life that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually reaching out for some thin rationalization to clothe an obvious wrong in the beautiful garments of righteousness. And this is exactly what happened during the days of slavery. There were those who even misused the Bible and religion to give some justification for slavery and to crystallize the patterns of the status quo. And so it was argued from some pulpits that 
The Negro was inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. Then the Apostle Paul's dictum became a watchword, Servants be obedient to your master. One brother had probably read the logic of the great philosopher Aristotle. You know, Aristotle did a great deal to bring into being what we now know as formal logic in philosophy. An informal logic that is a big word known as the syllogism, which has a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. And so this brother decided to put his argument for the inferiority of the Negro in the framework of an Aristotelian syllogism. He could say all men are made in the image of God. This was a major premise. Then came the minor premise. God, as everybody knows, is not a Negro. Therefore, the Negro is not a man. This was the kind of reasoning uh, that prevailed. Well, living with the conditions of slavery and then later segregation, many Negroes lost faith in themselves. Many came to feel that perhaps they were less than human. Many came to feel that they were inferior. This, it seems to me, is the greatest tragedy of slavery, the greatest tragedy of segregation, not merely what it does to the individual physically, but what it does to one psychologically. It scars the soul of the segregated as well as the segregator. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority while leaving the segregated with a false sense of inferiority. And this is exactly what happened. But then something happened to the Negro, and circumstances made it possible and necessary for him to travel more. The coming of the automobile, the upheavals of two world wars, the Great Depression. And so his rural plantation background gradually gave way to urban industrial life. His economic life was gradually rising through the growth of industry, the development of organized labor and expanded educational opportunities. And even his cultural life was gradually rising through the steady decline of crippling illiteracy. And all of these forces conjoined to cause a Negro in America to take a new look at himself. Negro masses all over began to re-evaluate themselves. And then something else happened along with all of this. The Negro in the United States turned his eyes and his mind to Africa. And he noticed the magnificent drama of independence taking place on the stage of African history. And noticing the developments, and noticing what was happening and noticing what was being done on the part of his black brothers and sisters in Africa gave him a new sense of dignity in the United States and a new sense of self-respect. The Negro came to feel that he was somebody. His religion revealed to him that God loves all of his children and that all men are made in his image. And that the basic thing about a man is not his specificity, but his fundamentum. Not the texture of his hair or the color of his skin, but his eternal dignity and worth. 
And so the Negro in America could now cry out unconsciously with the eloquent poet, fleecy locks and black complexion cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. And were I so tall as to reach the pole or to grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. And with this new sense of dignity and this new sense of self-respect, a new Negro came into being with a new determination to suffer, to struggle, to sacrifice, and even to die if necessary in order to be free. And this reveals that we have come a long, long way since 1619. Now this economic problem is getting more serious because of many forces alive in our world. For many years, Negroes were denied adequate educational opportunities. For many years, Negroes were even denied apprenticeship training. And so the forces of labor and industry so often discriminated against Negroes. And this meant that the Negro ended up being limited by and large to unskilled and semi-skilled labor. Now because of the forces of automation and cybernation, these are the jobs that are now passing away. And so the Negro wakes up in a city like Detroit, Michigan, and discovers that he's 28% of the population and about 72% of the unemployed. Now, in order to grapple with that problem, our federal government will have to develop massive retraining programs, massive public works programs, so that automation can be a blessing, as it must be, to our society and not a curse. Then the other thing, when we think of this economic problem, we must think of the fact that that is nothing more dangerous than to build a society with a segment in that society which feels that it has no stake in the society. There's nothing more dangerous than to build a society with a number of people who see life as little more than a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. They end up with despair because they have no jobs, because they can't educate their children, because they can't live in a nice home, because they can't have adequate health facilities. We always hear of the various reasons why and the various myths concerning integration and why integration shouldn't come into being. Those people who argue against integration at this point often say, well, uh, if you integrate the public schools, for instance, you will pull the white race back a generation. And they like to talk about the cultural lag in the Negro community. And then they go on to say, now, you know, the Negro is a criminal and he has the highest crime rate in any city that you can find in the United States. And the arguments go on ad infinitum, why integration shouldn't come into being. But I think there's an answer to that. And that is that if there is cultural lag in the Negro community, and there certainly is, this lag is there because of segregation and discrimination. It's there because of long years of slavery and segregation. Criminal responses are not racial but environmental. 
poverty, economic deprivation, social isolation, and all of these things breed crime, whatever the racial group may be. And it is a torturous logic to use the tragic results of racial segregation as an argument for the continuation of it. It is necessary to go back. And so it is necessary to see this and to go all out to make economic justice a reality all over our nation. I mentioned that racial segregation is about dead in the United States, but it's still with us. We are about past the day of legal segregation. We have about ended de jure segregation where the laws of the nation or of a particular state can uphold it because of the Civil Rights Bill and the Supreme Court's decision and other things. Uh, we have passed a day when the Negro can't eat at a lunch counter with the, the exception of a few isolated situations or where the Negro can't check in a motel or a hotel. We are fastly passing that day. But that is another form of segregation coming up. It is coming up through housing discrimination, joblessness, and the de facto segregation in the public schools. And so the ghettoized conditions that exist make for many problems, and it makes for a hardcore de facto segregation that we must grapple with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so this is the problem that we face, and this is the problem that we are forced to deal with. And we are going to deal with it in a determined way. I am absolutely convinced that segregation is on its deathbed and those who represent it, whether they be in the United States or whether they be in London, England, the system is on its deathbed. But certainly we all know that if democracy is to live in any nation, segregation must die. And as I've tried to say all over America, we've got to get rid of segregation, not merely because it will help our image, it certainly will help our image in the world. We've got to get rid of segregation not merely because it will appeal to Asian and African peoples, and this certainly will be helpful, this is important. But in the final analysis, racial discrimination must be uprooted from American society and from every society because it is morally wrong. So it is necessary to go all out and develop massive action programs to get rid of racial segregation. Hey, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Darling, My question, how do we fulfill Dr. King's dream? Dave in Canterbury, Connecticut. Hey, Dave. Hey, hey Tom. That's a good question, and that's basically one of the things I want to talk about today. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a union man. and I belong to Martin King's stated most favorite union, 1199. We went into the South and tried to organize poor health care workers. But anyway, I live in eastern Connecticut, Tom, and basically out here it's, 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 it's all basically all white, 
and and uh, the white people are very poorly educated to this holiday. Number one, they don't see it as a national holiday. That Martin King believed in justice for all people, and, and what really really bothers me the way the press diminishes this holiday, Tom. It, they, it, where I live, they'll go around and they'll find a few African American faces. Just, well, how do you feel about Martin King Day, and how do you feel about the dream? And, but they never talk to a white person, and white people think it's a black holiday, Tom. Yeah. And, and, and uh, they need to be educated better. And, and until the press catches on to that, well, this this is this is the problem. This is the problem, Dave. As I said, there were, you know, I think there's three consequential, and there's probably more. If you know of others, you know, call me and let me know. But three consequential legacies of Dr. King's. The first was, you know, civil rights for African Americans and all minorities. The second was the the inherent dignity of work, right? Raising people out of poverty and making sure people had jobs. And the third was his opposition to to war, to, to stupid and unnecessary wars, like the Vietnam War specifically. And and in fact, let me just read, I, I had said earlier, I'll read this later on, but you just set this up perfectly. Um, Dave, thank you for the call. Let me go off on a rant here. This is from the speech that Martin Luther King gave on July 4th, 1965, in, in his church in, in Atlanta. Uh, I, I read you the first, the setup for it. He says, this is why we must join the war against poverty. Now, just listen and and see if you hear any reference to people of color in this speech at all, because there it's not there. He is talking about the rights of all people, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, you name it, Native American, the rights of all people to have dignity associated with their work. He said, I submit to you that when I took off on that plane this morning, I saw men go out there in their overhauls. I saw them working on things here and there and saw some some more going out to put the breakfast on the plane so we could eat on our way to Atlanta. And I said to myself that these people who constitute the ground crew are just as significant as the pilot because this plane couldn't move if you didn't have the ground crew. I submit to you that Hugh Spald, that, that Hugh, in Hugh Spalding or Grady Hospital, these are hospitals, uh, the woman or the man who goes in there to sweep the floor is just as significant as the doctor because if he doesn't get that dust off the floor, germs will begin to circulate. And those same germs can do injury and harm to the human being. I submit to you this morning that there is dignity in all work. And when we learn to pay people decent, and we must learn to pay people decent wages, whoever cooks in your house, whoever sweeps the floor in your house, is just as significant as anybody who lives in that house. And everybody that we call a maid is serving God in a significant way. And I love maids. I love the people who have been ignored, and I want to see them get the kind of wages that they need. And their job is no longer a menial job for you to come see its worth and dignity. Are we really taking this thing seriously? All men are created equal? That means that every man who lives in a slum today is just as significant as John D. Nelson or any other Rockefeller. Any man who lives in a slum is just as significant as Henry Ford. All men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, rights that can't be separated from you. Go down and tell them, you may take my life, but you can't take my right to life. You may take my liberty, but you can't take my right to liberty. You may take from me the, des the, the desire. You may take from me the propensity to pursue ha happiness, but you cannot take from me the right to pursue happiness. We hold these truths to be self out Then he goes off on, uh, you know, on this. But this, you know... This should be, the Martin Luther King holiday should be a celebration of unionization, of workers' rights, of uh, anti-war sentiment, and of civil rights. Like a king, like a king.
Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is, and Jesus. It is, actually. It's it comes every year. Um, here, at least, we're happy when it comes. And uh, one of the ways that you'll normally know that it's going on is that Twitter and Facebook and the news will become rife with uh, MLK videos and quotes. A lot you'll see very often. There are some that are a little bit rarer, that, that delve into the not just focused on race aspects of his legacy and of his mission when he was a leader in the African-American community. He was very interested in questions of economic justice, about the decision to go to war, things of that sort. And so we want to focus on a few of those. We're going to read some of the quotes you're less likely to see on MLK Jr. Day. The first is, so we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watched them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. So he was a big critic of the decision to go to war, especially what he saw as incredibly unjust wars. And it is ironic that, I mean, this is one of the areas that, are mil that our country has not changed all that much. It is still overwhelmingly the poor who fight our wars. And very often you will see, I guess, social justice and social progress in the military long before you will in the rest of the country in terms of integration and things of that sort, that we, we expect them to go and destroy homes uh, abroad, but they wouldn't share them here in America is an odd commentary on our country. Yeah, it's one of the great, you know, the, toward the end of uh, King's life is, is the, his opposition to the Vietnam War became a bigger and bigger part of his platform. Uh, and a, for lack of a better phrase, and, and, but, but translating that to what it should be, which is a, a war on poverty here at home, talking about poor Americans and not necessarily just black poor Americans, yeah. caused a significant divide uh, with him and some of the people who stood with him in the civil rights movement. Uh, it's just, but it's another example, and I'm not saying that those people who opposed him in that regard were wrong, but it is another example of the sort of great courage on every mm -hmm. level of this man who risked his life you know, the, you know, for those who've seen Selma and those who are familiar with the history around there, who risked his life throughout the 1960s on a, on a regular basis, showed great courage in that regard, but great political courage also. Mm -hmm. That if he saw something, he, he thought, no, no, I'm, this, this war is wrong and, and poverty in the United States to this extent is wrong and a lot of those poor people are white and I'm, yeah. I'm gonna fight for that too. You, you, it really makes you, so much to think about about where this guy would have gone and what direction that he would have gone in into the 1970s if he, if he hadn't been murdered. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it shows that he understood that that racism isn't just the natural condition of humanity. Like it can be manipulated, and one of the biggest ways that that you you work to generate more racial division, racial strife, is to to keep a certain class of of not just African Americans but whites as well poor. And you make them fight for the limited resources they see around them locally, and then they, they become more anti-immigrant, and they become more anti-black, because they think that they're fighting over the few jobs, the limited amount of wages. Um, and so he saw that fixing poverty would also fix a lot of the racial uh, division that we saw in America. Uh, I really like this quote here. He says, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an ed edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And what I love about that is, is very often the most compassion you can get out of religious conservatives and especially religious Republicans is to say, we don't need a social safety net. We don't need anything like that. We can, we can rely on the churches to do charity. And they would do charity. They do do charity. They give away tons of not just money, but also food and shelter and things like that. 
But simply giving someone a few dollars so that they can maybe eat that day is not the solution to all of our problems. You can question the underlying structure of our economy that not just ends up with poor people, but seems to require uh, a, a pool of poor people to function the way that it does. Um, and he thought that we should uh, question the actual structure. Can't disagree with you on anything. Good. That's the way I aim it. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin, far more now. And when you begin to ask that question, you are raising questions about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water? Did he say... That's a great point. Redistribution of wealth? He did. He seemed yeah. like he was a communist motherfucker. Yeah. He, yeah. He, could, he could become president, but he would be attacked daily on Fox. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And look, it was our first story. We, re, we, we redistribute wealth. We read. We redistribute wealth. We redistribute wealth. <laughs> we do all three of those things. There is a, a redistribution basis. of wealth in this yeah. country. And there always has been. From the first tax that we took, we used it to pay something else. Yeah. And that's how it works. And let's kill that phrase. I mean, let's, every time Fox says it, let's just call them liars, mm -hmm. deceivers. Yeah. Uh, because that's exactly what they're doing. I don't even like. I, I think that we could, we should probably destroy it because that's more likely to work. But we could just, we could have people understand that it doesn't just mean one thing. It doesn't just mean stealing from the rich to give to the poor. When capital gains taxes are at thirty percent, and then you lower them to twenty percent, and then you generate less revenue, and states realize, oh shit, we need to start instituting fees and things like that because we still need the money that we're not getting anymore. That is a redistribution of wealth. It's just not the way that you've been raised to think wealth will be redistributed. Science investigates, religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. They are complementary. I like that he's trying to bridge the gap, but I disagree with the distinction that he makes there. I don't think that you need religion to talk about values. I think that science can talk about values. Read the quote again. And far more accurately. Found, so it took you two seconds to say something dumb. The, <laughs> Let's put, bring put, it back up. Put the quote. I'm like, yeah, I can't. You're brilliant. Like, he doesn't say... He said science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. Does he say that you need religion to have values in there? Show me that sentence. He says they're complementary. Does he say that? that they need to There's both no, exist. No, he says, right, he is fighting to show that the world of religion can exist in a world of science. He is standing up to the people in religion that's who fight science. Mm -hmm. But of course I that's what that, he, yes. I don't think I just, you do. I think that all too often, even extremely liberal, extremely um, trusting in science people will, will, will mimic, don't give me the fail stamp, will mimic that idea that science can say nothing about values. I, I fundamentally disagree with that. He doesn't say that. that. He is saying the role of okay. religion is to provide values. He doesn't say the role of science isn't, or that the role of religion, without religion, we can have no value. <laughs> he was anti-science. He, he is, killed Galileo. He is literally doing the thing that we're begging okay. religious leaders to do. That quote is at 10. Okay, agree to disagree. You no! Guys, you guys fight it no, out in the comments. No, pronounced San Diego. <laughs> okay, one final quote. Over the, this was a bit controversial at the time. Over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizens' council or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, 
which is the presence of justice. Now, what was wrong with that one, John? I want to read that one because I think that especially after the situation at Ferguson, the situation in New York City, I think that there are many people who do not think of themselves as holding any racial prejudice or animus and generally thinks, I don't look down on anyone, I'm totally fine with everyone. But then when the group that they're super tolerant towards starts to actually fight for ask what for, they believe in. Literally ask for anything. Ask for any justice or any investigation, free, yeah. suddenly now it becomes a bigger problem. I'm not, gonna, I'm not against them, but come on, do you really have to protest? Well, you know, do you really I, have to burn things? I won't call out anybody by name because I, 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 I love this person dearly, but one of my mom's friends, and I was in Florida this week, and my mom is a big liberal in Florida, but most of her friends are conservatives, and and this is a woman who, I, I, again, I, I, I couldn't love more. She's mm -hmm. fantastic. She's great. But? But. Here comes the but. She just doesn't get it, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's a fair amount of talk about the blacks and, and the, you know, and, and like, why can't we see movies that she remembers fondly that are pretty hideously racist now? And, <laughs> uh, you know, and she's like, and I think every time we give them something, it just sets them back. And, and again, it's because after, I'm sure it is, after Ferguson and after Staten Island, that we see what made her uncomfortable mm -hmm. was this demand of change like hey why are you why are you always complaining stop 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 yeah. and like and, and i get the i'm a good person i'm not a racist i think you should be equal i think everybody yeah. should be equal i'm just but, not willing to have it happen and i'm not ready to accept anything. that there's a real reason why things aren't equal mm -hmm. like ultimately it comes down to shut up and work harder yeah uh so it was frustrating, but I stuck to it, and we argued, and I made some, you know, I got some points in. But yeah. again, she's great, and I care about her a lot. So, what are you gonna That's do? awesome. Okay, well, uh, so anyway, it, it, look, it's an important time of year, not just to reflect on his legacy, all that he accomplished, all that he might have accomplished if he hadn't been gunned down, but also to take a look at his quotes and to realize that much of what he was talking about then is still just as true today. So I pray, I pray every day, I do embrace how to make up. Looking for culture, I got my not people to make up. Pushing and shaking the structure, bringing down a Babylon. Hearing the song that I make it hard for the proud. You were in town to see the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who comes out of the black liberation theology tradition. And in the 2008 election, we saw this interesting moment where the rest of America, the, the you know, dominant culture, I suppose, got introduced in a, in a terrible way to black liberation theology because Jeremiah Wright was portrayed as this, what, hateful caricature of his self and became a kind of a pariah and was railroaded by the media and ultimately disowned by President Obama, who certainly knew what Jeremiah Wright was preaching. And in this terrible moment, this wonderful tradition of black liberation theology suddenly was cast by the whole culture as something hateful and un-American. And, and how did you respond to that? Well, I, I thought it was a tragic event and that this was certainly a political attack on a very noble and, and uh, important religious figure in, in the black community, uh, Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright. That Those 30 seconds were patched together from... You know, just words were clipped together. I mean, it was incoherent in many ways. So, and not a true representation of him or, or the tradition. I think a better example for the moment, and one that might be more familiar, the movie Selma has recently uh, come out. 
everyone should run, not walk, to see Selma. And it will remind us that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was also in the tradition of prophetic black liberation theology, no less than uh, Dr. Wright. And that in his time, if you listen to his words, uh, and, if, and you could certainly patch them together in such a way and it, it, you know, excise certain words that would uh, give a clear understanding of his message, that where he talks about how white folks this and white folks that and we, you know, stop beating us, shooting us and the, the evil and wickedness of segregation, you could patch together some, some phrases that would not be very friendly. Uh, but Dr. King, whose uh, birthday celebration is this weekend, uh, was a, a proponent of black liberation theology as well. He was about the liberation and freedom of black people who were suffering under state-sponsored terrorism mm -hmm. in the 1960s. We, we, we talk about state-sponsored terrorism around the world, but we've had it right here in the United States. State-sponsored terrorism sponsored by states like Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, and and as another Truth Dig cartoon showed, what connection is there between the state troopers that beat and brutalized protesters on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma and the police who beat and choke and shoot and kill unarmed black men today? Well, I, yeah, I, w I wanted to bring this up. I just was Googling while you were speaking because I don't want to screw up the quote. Um, but he, Dr. King had this great line um, about riots because, uh, and this came up in the wake of the decision not to indict the officer who shot Michael Brown in Ferguson. And there's this great King quote where he says, a riot is the language of the unheard. And he says in the fuller context that it would be wrong for me to condemn, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, the actions of the rioters without first addressing the actions that caused them to riot and that take away their ability to change things and make them feel as though that's the only course of action. Amen, Dr. King. Mm -hmm. I think a perfect example uh, of that is contrast the trial in Florida, the Zimmerman trial, with the non-trial in Ferguson and St. Louis. The difference there was transparency. Mm -hmm. That's, they, they didn't riot in Florida because what they demanded was granted in terms of a trial that made transparent the law and the reasons why a conclusion was reached, even if you disagreed with the decision, as most of us did. But people didn't riot because it was a transparent process. Whereas in Ferguson and New York, you have the grand juries, the secret grand juries, that hide what's happening and then come out and simply announce that after someone has been killed, there's not going to be a trial. And that was what we see displayed in Selma that the state troopers and the police officers in these small southern towns would kill people and there would not even be an arrest or a trial. And mm -hmm. so that history is what many people who see Ferguson in New York and, and Cleveland and other places uh, as, as connected. And one of the things that, that we have to remember when you go to see Selma these are events in our own lifetimes. This is not ancient history. These things happen to 
many of us who are alive today, and if not someone to whom you are closely connected, your parents and grandparents, for sure. So this is not ancient and distant history. These are things that have happened right here in our own country. Hands to the heavens, no man, no weapon. Formed against, yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is just a position in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walked through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots, we on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day. When the glory comes, it will be out. It will be out. Oh, one day. I think we have a very Pollyanna naive view of the struggle up to this point. And so, because think about how we were taught, right? We were taught that most of us in school, at least, unless we had a really extraordinary teacher, we were taught. Boy, America had these problems. And then some good people got together, and thank God they solved the problems. And then there were some more problems, but some other good people got together, and then they solved it. It's always linear. It's always, you know, we're always getting better. Everything's getting better. And so because of that, whenever there's a lull in the current movement, which, as you said, there's always going to be a lull. There's going to be two steps forward, one and a half steps back. We start thinking, oh, man, we're just not as good as those activists back in the 60s or those activists in the abolitionist struggle or those activists in the labor union movement or those activists in whatever. But the reality is the only reason we think that is because we didn't learn how many setbacks they experienced, how many lulls there were between the beginning of the abolitionist struggle, which goes all the way back to the early, to the late 1700s. Hell, it goes all the way back to the 1600s in the colonies when folks started speaking out against enslavement. You had folks in 1739 in the Georgia colony that petitioned the king to eliminate slavery in the Georgia colony, but it didn't happen right away, did it? But the movement was building, and it was building, and they were spreading that wisdom. And the civil rights struggle, we think of like, okay, Montgomery bus boycott all the way to the Voting Rights Act with no hiccups. Because that's how we were taught it. Oh, they, first this, and then the sit-ins, and then the Birmingham campaign, and then Freedom Summer, and then Selma, and then the Voting Rights Act. Boom, done. Everything's good. But we don't learn about how many mistakes were made along the way, how many trip-ups there were. We don't learn about, really, the failed campaign in Albany, Georgia. Failed campaign, thought to be one of Dr. King's biggest defeats, right? Because the whole idea is we're going to go shut the city down, get everybody arrested, and the folks in Albany were ready for them, and they had enough trucks and enough cars and enough jail cells, and they waited them out. Right, the idea was we're going to overwhelm the jails, and they got all the jails in the area, and they held them all. That was considered a defeat, but it didn't stop the movement. So be prepared for setback. Be prepared for lulls. And what you do in that moment when there's a lull is you strategize. See, the thing sometimes about lulls is they give you opportunities. Sometimes it's good to have a lull because that's when you can sit and regroup. Sometimes when you're just out in the street and everything's going well, you get a little ahead of yourself, right? You can go, oh my God, look at this, look at all this attention we've got. We got this media, we shut down the interstate, we, we, we shut down the school for the day, we interrupted business as usual. And, and so you think it's going to be like that every day, but when you're out there in the streets, it's hard to plan. Sometimes that's impulsive and we need impulsive. But we also need those times when we sit back and we lick our wounds a little bit and we say, okay, now when the cameras are not on, what do we do? 
Because as long as the cameras are on you, strategizing is difficult. Because now it's about getting the attention, making, taking advantage of the attention. We have to spend the lull time really thinking it through. And I think um, young folks are extraordinary in their ability to think strategically in a digital age in particular. I'm very cynical about the overuse of technology or the over-reliance on it as an organizing tool. I'm cynical about it. I, I have my issues with it. But you cannot deny the importance of social media and technology and a digital age in getting folks organized quickly in city after city after city, so much so that one of the big complaints right now coming from cops who are trying to, like, control all of these marches is they're, they're all using that Twitter thing and we can't keep up. Exactly. That's why they're using it, because it's not on your frequency, right? And so using that, don't over-rely on it. Remember, the best organizing is still face-to-face -face and door-to-door -door and hand-in-hand -hand and working together and actually getting to know people. But at least for mobilization purposes, this is a brilliant tool. And we're seeing this not just in the wake of the Eric Garner non-indictment of that cop or the non-indictment of Darren Wilson for killing Mike Brown. We're seeing it over in North Carolina with Moral Mondays, Reverend Barber and the people working with him. A lot of them young folks showing up week after week after week to talk about a whole plethora of issues. Some of them criminal justice related, some of them economic justice related and making the connections between those things. We're seeing them out in Arizona where you've got some young folks who haven't gotten nearly enough attention, but they should. We're talking young folk, Chicano activists who are fighting for the restoration of Larasa studies in the Tucson Unified School District, which was taken from them, which was taken from them by an overtly racist chief of education in that state, and they've been fighting nonstop. They've been taking over school board meetings. They've been fighting with the folks who ran that program, Augie Romero and others, to get that program reinstated. It's the most incredible thing because it was a program that was expanding Latino graduation rates far and away better than the other students who were Latino uh, students in the Tucson schools. And that's why they got rid of it. Not because it wasn't working, but because it was working. And now you got these young people who are going into meetings, taking over meetings, refusing to leave some of them undocumented who are risking deportation, risking their entire livelihood and the future of their education to tell us what we need to hear. That is incredible. And sometimes we forget the importance of the energy of young people because we look at the movement, like if you look at old footage, right, and you look at old people's, like not old people, but people's pictures a long time ago, they always look older than they really were, right? Like you look at your parents' high school graduation, but you're like, y'all look old. You look like you were 40 and you were 18, right? I remember looking at my parents when they were 17, like, damn, you look middle age and, and right? Because people's hair was different, people's style was different, and the way they look was different. But so you look at that and you think, look at these, like, these folks are older than me. But no, the average age of folks involved in that struggle was probably about 19 years old. Dr. King was 26 when he was at the pinnacle of the Montgomery bus boycott. He was 39 when he was taken from us. That's not old. I used to think that was old when I was 15. Now I'm 46. That is not old. Right? That is, that is quite young. So we think about, we see all these young folks that led the sit-ins in Greensboro, in Nashville, all around the country. Those were young people. Right? John Lewis was a young man when he was doing that work. Diane Nash was a young woman when she was doing that work. Right? C.T. Vivian was not as young as then, but he was younger than he is now, still at it all of those years later. So we got folks who have been doing this for a very long time, very young people. The same was true in South Africa. The same has been true in every society where social change has been made. So for those of us who are older, the key is to trust young folks. Yes, they'll make mistakes, but they'll learn from them just like we did. For young folks, it is to learn your history and to understand that every setback you experience is an opportunity to regroup and get better at what you do, and that the country and the future of this world depends upon you. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it.
you've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and maybe just a bit inspired today, I figured now's the time to make you angry and then tell you what you can do about it. Today's activism demand Congress address civil and human rights. Now, even those with only a cursory knowledge of the work done by Martin Luther King Jr. and the millions of civil rights activists from the founding of our country through today can look at the current climate in our courts and Congress and see the systematic dismantling of the protections fought for with blood, sweat, and tears. From the Supreme Court's dismissal of the enforcement of provisions of the Voting Rights Act to the announcement made by the newly GOP-led Congress that the words civil rights and human rights had been deleted from the title of the Senate Constitution Committee. Yes, they actually did that. The infrastructure that provided some measure of relief from pre-Civil War and Jim Crow days is crumbling. Perhaps the Grand Old Party thinks we are, indeed, post-racial and post-patriarchal, or perhaps they simply don't care about civil rights, or perhaps they feel threatened by it, or perhaps they're just trying to reduce their workload and simplify their jobs. I mean, we all know how hard they work in those 132 days they're in session each year. Now, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights has a simple, important action at civilrights.org under the Take Action tab. Add your name to the letter with a clear title, Congress Must Address Civil and Human Rights Priorities in 2015. Apparently, this is something we must now remind our legislators is part of their job description. The letter urges your legislators to make 2015 a year of action on civil and human rights issues. The three categories this coalition of civil rights groups seeks to address are economic security and opportunity, voting rights, and criminal and racial justice. Nancy Zirkin, Executive Vice President of the Leadership Conference on Human and Civil Rights, responded to the Senate's decision to rename the Constitution Committee, and she said, in part, quote, the new Senate Republican majority's decision to expunge civil rights and human rights from this subcommittee's name is a discouraging sign given the growing diversity of our nation and the complex civil and human rights challenges we face. Names matter. This, after all, is a subcommittee with jurisdiction over the implementation and enforcement of many of our most important civil rights laws. We cannot afford to demote the importance of civil and human rights in the 114th Congress. While we have made progress, we still have a long way to go to address issues such as voting discrimination and hate crimes and violence committed against individuals because of their race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, gender, gender identity, or sexual orientation. In addition, the recent deaths of unarmed African-American men and boys at the hands of police have spurred a movement across the nation calling for reforms to our nation's justice system, which would likely fall under this subcommittee's jurisdiction, unquote. Take two minutes and support the leadership conference in demanding that Congress tend to the needs and rights of all the citizens they represent. Considering their behavior so far this session, we're going to need to continually remind them, and it's best we get started immediately. Also, if you haven't yet, go see Ava DuVernay's Selma. The movie grabbed a nomination for Best Picture, but she was snubbed by the 94% white, 76% male Academy voters in the director's category. Anyone who's seen the end of any awards show knows how rare this is. Your movie is nominated, you clean up in additional nominations, and typically in wins as well. When you see Selma, you can feel the director's influence. It would be an entirely different movie without her perspective behind the camera. It's not enough to know what happened during King's lifetime and be able to list the accomplishments of the movement, especially at a time when that legacy is being whitewashed. Go see Selma and actually feel what happened. 
The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If halting the systematic dismantling of civil rights victories matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Leadership Conference's campaign via social media so that others in your network can add their voices. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Those who wrote speeches for King said they were always King's speeches, basically. But you would be, in Clarence Jones' words, like a very crude architect. You would set up the four walls, and then King, like a beautiful interior designer, would come and he would make it his own. And King speaks very faithfully to uh, the main text. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But then as, uh, and if you listen to the speech, um, and I would advise you to listen to it, it's the most popular, least well-known speech I've heard of. When I told my brother I was doing uh, this book, he said, I love that speech. It's such a great speech. You know, that thing about I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land, and I said, it's a great speech, but it's not that speech. And um, uh, he's winding up. He says, go back to Mississippi, go back to Louisiana, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Behind him is sitting Mahalia Jackson, a very, very close and special friend. When King was on the road, he would often call Mahalia Jackson for what they termed gospel therapy. He would call her and he would ask her to sing to him down the phone to soothe his spirit when he was down. And so he knew her well, he knew her voice well. And she shouts, tell him about the dream, mum, tell him about the dream. She had heard him deliver the dream segment in June in Detroit. King continues. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. And then she shouts again, tell us about the dream, Martin. Tell us about the dream. I say to you today, my friend. And then, in the words of Clarence Jones, King puts his text to the left of the podium. And in his body language, changes from a lecturer to a preacher. And Jones turns to the person next to him and says, those people don't know him, but they're about to go to church. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. At which point, Wyatt T. Walker, the man who advised him not to do that, who's in the crowd, turns to the person next to him and says, oh, sh**, he's doing the dream. So, um, that's how we got there. And what's interesting is that when you ask people who were there at the time and who knew King well, to a person, they will tell you that they did not, of all the speeches that he made, this was not 
particularly one that they thought we would be talking about in 50 years' time. It was a great speech that none of them, you know, deny that. But many of them have different speeches that they thought uh, were better. And either way, they said great speeches was what King did. And so I spend a fair amount of time in the book looking at why that is. And I want to kind of really suggest two things here. The first is that there is something for pretty much everybody in this speech. If you are an African-American, part of a community who's told that you are genetically stupid, that you're poor because you're stupid, that your stupidity is your responsibility, and that your... Uh, the, the failings in your community have nothing to do with history and everything to do with you, then to know that the best speech, America's favorite speech, was delivered by an African-American in the black vernacular as an indictment of American racism is something to be very proud of. If you are a patriot, there is nothing in this speech that you need worry about. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Literally and metaphorically delivered in the shadow of Lincoln that pays homage to the founding fathers, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. It's an American speech. couldn't have come from anywhere else. If you are progressive, this speech comes on this day. There have been few days like this for American progressives. Fair enough, only 20% of the crowd was white, which was less than what they were expecting. But nonetheless... This was the first march of its kind in Washington. Now, marches in Washington are two to a penny, but this mass demonstration, they hoped for 100,000, they got 250,000. Never been, uh, had never been done before. And it comes, and this is the way I describe it in, in the book, it is the most eloquent articulation of the last great moral act that America can claim for which there is any consensus, and that is the end of American apartheid that um, whatever people say now or feel able to say, nobody who wants to be take serious, taken seriously is calling for those signs to go back up. Nobody is calling for a return to formal codified segregation. And however small that may seem when we see the amount of racism that can still spew from the mouths of those who are elected or unelected, that is no small thing. The end of apartheid is a big thing, and it's, um, I, I believe it's the last great moral thing that America can really claim to have done as a country. So there is that, that num a number of people have something to claim, but there's also something else. King, when he delivers that speech, there is an even number of Americans with a favorable and unfavorable view of him. By 66, twice as many Americans have an unfavorable view than a favorable view. By, and then he's dead in 68, assassinated. By 1999, when Americans are polled on who are their favorite characters of the 20, 20th century, King comes second only to Mother Teresa. So something happens between when he's assassinated as a somewhat marginal and polarized figure and 1999. And this is what I think has happened. First of all, why does he become unpopular? Well, when... The speech is delivered. The year after comes the Civil Rights Act. The year after that comes the Voting Rights Act. Legislation begins to kick in. And King understands that the end of segregation is not the same as the beginning of equality. As he says, I have given people, we have won the right to eat in any restaurant of our choice, but we do not have the ability to eat everything that's on the menu because we can't afford it. 
There are 40 million poor people here. And one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society we are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. You see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? Now, that kind of talk in America in 1967 will get you killed. And sure enough, a year later, he is killed. She starts talking about capitalism. Year after that, in 67, he starts at the Riverside Church. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And takes a stand against the Vietnam War. Now, how is America then going to remember King? Well, it can't remember him if it's going to raise him to iconic status, if it's going to put him on the mall then it has to sanitize him for public consumption. It has to make him the kind of person who could come second to Mother Teresa. And you can't do that with a man in America who questions capitalism. Because to remember King in that way would not raise him above the fray, it would enter him into it. You can't remember King as a man who criticized capitalism and still hold him up as an American uh, icon. That doesn't work unless what it takes to be an American icon changes. You can't remember him. America can't remember him. The powers that be is the man who called America the greatest purveyor of military violence in the world today because arguably it still is. And it was notable on the 50th anniversary of the speech. It took place literally on a split screen. And on one screen, there was Obama, Clinton, Carter, carrying Kim's mantle, cloaking themselves in his legacy, and on the other screen, will we bomb Syria? When will we bomb Syria? Why wouldn't we bomb Syria? You can't remember King as that, have him on the mall, and still claim him to be an American icon when he's speaking about America being the greatest purveyor of military violence. But you can remember him as a man who got rid of American apartheid. Not American racism, because that would involve a whole different set of conversations about why black men in D.C. have a lower life expectancy rate than men on the Gaza Strip. You can't have that conversation, but you can have the conversation about why or how he got rid of uh, American uh, apartheid. Uh, and so that's the way that they choose to remember him. And so I, I, I end with just one paragraph where... I talk about the process by which King and through him the speech can be sanitized. And they say white America, most of it, came to embrace King in the same way that most white South Africans came to accept Nelson Mandela. Grudgingly and gratefully. 
retrospectively, selectively, without grace, but with considerable guile. By the time they realized their dislike of him was spent and futile, he'd created a world in which admiring him was in their own self-interest, because, in short, they had no choice. When it comes to King and his speech, one of the central arguments in this book is it's not just about what you remember, it's also about what you forget. Hi, Jay. This is Zoe calling. I'm a student in Durham, North Carolina. I want to thank you for your thoughtful episode on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. I particularly appreciated the clip that mentioned the history of abortion and the defensive messaging that liberals use on the issue of abortion. As I was listening to coverage of the anti-choice rally in D.C., I heard people chanting, Hey, Obama, your mama chose life. And I wondered what their reaction would be if I told them that my mom had chosen abortion. She did, at one point, find the procedure necessary given her circumstances. She told me this when I was in high school, and she explained to me that she didn't connect with the messaging that abortion is always a difficult and tragic choice, but sometimes necessary. In her case, and in the case of many other women, the choice is obvious. While I can't say for sure, I'm pretty confident that if I was put in that situation anytime soon, I would feel the same. When asked to choose between completing the education I have invested so much of my time in in order to follow my dreams and a child I wouldn't be able to support, I can't imagine feeling too devastated about pursuing my life as originally planned. So I encourage more women to speak about their experiences, especially if they subvert the shaming narrative that we're, we are trapped in. We need to change the narrative that stigmatizes women and reproductive autonomy to a narrative of female empowerment. Thanks for all your work, Jay. Keep it up. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Ruben from San Jose. And I was calling because of This American Life did a broadcast about local fry recently, and I just thought it'd be interesting to maybe revisit it for a second and let you know that um, it's kind of, like, connected to harassment of women. Like, it's not surprising, but... Um, women are criticized of having vocal fry more regularly than men are. And it's like something that has uh, come up in popular discussions about, you know, like, oh, I can't stand this woman's voice or, well, not so, not as often this man's voice as a, fun as a function of, like, vocal fry. And I don't know, it's funny because the, the way that I think about it is that, like, men's voices just being a little bit deeper, maybe a little bit more bassy, not necessarily the case, of course, but, um, like, I feel like men probably do it more often, right? It's, like, probably just, like, a function of the way a lot of men speak, and people in general, right? So, I don't know, I just thought it'd be kind of uh, cool, maybe listen if you already heard it, but yeah, but, but, but um, I might be interested in that. I just heard that episode of This American Life yesterday and completely agree that it was excellent, especially including the Vocal Fry segment. If you want to check it out for yourself, it's the one titled, If You Don't Have Anything Nice to Say, Say It in All Caps. 
And there's actually another segment that's, I think, more important, which talks about trolling, online trolling, specifically of women, especially regarding, you know, rape threats and just really, really terrible over-the-top things that get said to women to make their lives miserable and and essentially try to silence them. But uh, the way that that story plays out is absolutely worth checking out. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And, uh... I just wanted to mention something that came up in conversations with my family over the holidays about uh, Michael Brown and Eric Garner and so forth, is that some of my relatives say, you know, when I discuss disparities in law enforcement and so forth toward African Americans and uh, to a lesser extent some other minorities, they say, oh, well, you know, it's their culture. Their culture is more of rebellion and criminality and so on and so forth. It's black culture. One of the things that I want to bring up that I think is useful, it wouldn't be useful for this person that I'm thinking of because he's basically a high-functioning sociopath. But for some people to shine a light on this, what this is is a basic attribution error, kind of like when, when I say I make mistakes, right, but you are mistaken, right? You are erroneous. When I see you make a mistake, since you're not me, I'm more likely to attribute it as a, as a core piece of your personality, whereas for me, I just made a mistake, right? Sometimes I make mistakes. You make a mistake. It's a part of you. It's what you are. So what I'd like to equate this with is when people say, you know, rap music and everything else, what about the guys at the high school in the suburbs or in the more rural areas that come in with their Confederate flags and their, you know, they're, they're squealing the tires, their big pickup truck, and they're having, uh, you know, they're going out cow tipping and they're having, uh, you know, play rebellious music that's just country music. And then there's the guys that go in in the more suburban or urban areas, you know, especially when I was a kid, they, they had long mullets with, you know, spikes growing out of them or, or shaved heads with spikes coming out of their leather jackets. And they, they dress in a socially somewhat inappropriate manner. Their music is made to be rebellious and or shocking to the adult culture. You know, there's a tinge of violence to it, of the heavy metal of some of the country, but not as not as much in in in, in the country music as as the the ex- express violence. But there is some shock and all they're trying to do. They participate in drug and alcohol parties, and uh, you know all that other stuff. That when you did that when you were a kid, you might see it as a phase that you went through. But if you see it in others, or especially in other races, in this case, in African American kids. The truth is, yes, it's in their culture. They have that rebellion when they're teenagers and young adults. But we all do. Some large portion of every race goes through that rebellious phase in young adulthood. And the difference is when we attribute it to their culture as a permanent feature is when it becomes criminal and dangerous. Because when a white kid is rebellious, he's just being rebellious. right? When a black kid is rebellious, they see it as... He, as a person, is rebellion. It's in his DNA. It's not even just a matter of when he turns 22, he's going to pull his pants up and and turn his music down a little bit. It's like the white kid will hang up his his studded jacket. The black kid will always be that because it's been attributed to him as a as a property of his you know DNA. So just thought that that might be something people might bring up to their friends and family when they say, "Oh, well, it's just the culture." Thanks and have a nice day. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And now I would like to expand on this conversation a bit. At the very beginning of the show, Dr. King talked about sort of the history of slavery and racism in this country and, and then also touched on what became the cultural divide and how that was actually brought about by the policies themselves and you know, it wasn't a natural divide between the races. And so I have been working just in the past uh, couple of weeks on, on getting one of my uh, East Coast ivory tower liberal merit badges. So I've been reading uh, Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States. And I highlighted a couple of passages that are relevant to this topic and want to share those with you. So this first one is laying the groundwork for racism between blacks and whites not being natural. So it says, as one scholar of slavery, Kenneth Stamp has put it, Negro and white servants of the 17th century were, quote, remarkably unconcerned about the visible physical differences, unquote. Black and white worked together, fraternized together. The fact that laws had been passed after a while to forbid such relations indicates the strength of that tendency. There is an enormous difference between the feeling of racial strangeness, perhaps fear, and the mass enslavement of millions of black people that took place in the Americas. The transition from one to the other cannot be explained easily by natural tendencies. It is not hard to understand as an outcome of historical conditions. Now, at this point in the book, he goes into great detail explaining the historical context and and circumstances that led to slavery, and then he sums it up like this. We now see a complex web of historical threads to ensnare blacks for slavery in America. The desperation of starving settlers, he had talked about how settlers literally couldn't feed them so they didn't have enough labor and so they needed more people working in the fields. The special helplessness of the displaced African, and this is especially in comparison to how the settlers had tried to enslave Native Americans but weren't able to because they could run away and were adept at living on the land and you know they were they were on their home turf, whereas Africans brought over as slaves had just gone through an incredibly traumatic sea voyage, were probably like scarred emotionally in ways none of us can even understand. And then were brought to this place where they were completely unfamiliar. So, so there was a special helplessness there. The powerful incentive of profit for slave trader and planter. That one's pretty self-explanatory. The temptation of superior status for poor whites. Now, they had started putting in policies that gave poor whites slightly higher status to black slaves as a way of dividing and conquering in you know, one of the most classic examples of all time. The elaborate controls against escape and rebellion, the legal and social punishment of black and white collaboration. The point is that the elements of this web are historical, not natural. This does not mean that they are easily disentangled and dismantled. It means only that there is a possibility for something else under historical conditions not yet realized. And one of these conditions would be the elimination of that class exploitation which has made poor whites desperate for small gifts of status and has prevented that unity of black and white necessary for joint rebellion and reconstruction. So it's pretty clear to see that they've been playing this trick for hundreds of years that, you know, if, if black slaves and white servants and just poor white people, just the, the white underclass, could see that they are all on exactly the same page effectively in, in the you know economic status, 
then they could work together to overthrow that system. And so recognizing that the people in charge making the laws put these structures in place to divide these people based on race, knowing that if we can come up with a way to split their power, then they'll be effectively powerless against us. So just to, to finish up, there's one more paragraph, skipping ahead a bit more. He says, Racism was becoming more and more practical. Edmund Morgan, on the basis of his career study of slavery in Virginia, sees racism not as natural to black-white difference, but something coming out of class scorn, a realistic device for control. Quote, if free men with disappointed hopes should make common cause with slaves of desperate hope, the results might be worse than anything Bacon had done, referring to Bacon's rebellion. The answer to that problem, obvious if unspoken and only gradually recognized, was racism. To separate dangerous free whites from dangerous black slaves by a screen of racial contempt. So the point is that this entire mess we're in is completely man-made, and we simply haven't finished cleaning it up yet. There have been hundreds of years of systematic racist indoctrination and structural mechanisms put in place with the specific goal of dividing the races for the sake of preserving the power of the powerful. It's just a sad fact that only 50 years after the civil rights movement, just isn't enough time to have recovered from that. People are still racist, even if they recognize now intellectually that they shouldn't be, and many of our societal structures still work to divide us by race. So it may be true that we've made a lot of progress, but we still have a long way to go. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And Stories and forget who it is before.